0: But our bodies do have that intuitive wisdom and the yo-yo dieting just so often causes us to really harm ourselves mentally and physically and emotionally they're not sustainable um, and anything that offers you that like beautiful shiny fix i would be really weary of I began the journey of shifting my career to a job that aligned with my values and beliefs, having an education in health coaching has been transformational. Through the Institute of Integrative Nutrition, you can become a certified health coach to empower your relationship with food, health, and wellness, live your dreams, earn while you learn, and embark on a new path. Join the global community of like-minded change agents who are here to empower, inspire, and motivate you to create the life you've always dreamed of by clicking the link in the show notes. And by doing so, you'll receive $2,000 off tuition when you pay in full or $1,500 off tuition if you choose the payment plan option. Or you can mention my name, Samantha Nagel, spelled N-A-G-E-L. Discover how to take a holistic and nourishing approach to health and wellness today. Welcome to the Empowered Spirituality Podcast. Join me, your host, Samantha Nagel, a certified integrative nutrition health coach poet, witch, and work in progress for grounding meditations, inspiring interviews, and reflections about spirituality, holistic health, and the world around us. Join in every Thursday as we explore what empowered spirituality means to us in today's world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Empowered Spirituality. This is me, Sam. Um, Thanks for joining me for another solo episode. Um, This episode is going to be talking about um, like fad diets or kind of ways that we approach health that are really popular. So I'm going to be going over a couple, just a couple of like diets and eating styles and trends that I've seen both on social media and also with friends and family. Um, I had a couple people input for this episode who are in my life. So I think that's going to be really, really helpful information. So yeah, I'm really excited. And um, there is going to be a part two for this episode next week, next Tuesday, um, that's going to be about food racism and like food privilege. Um, So That will kind of be a follow-up on that on this episode um, and have some more detailed information of the things that I say this episode. So I might expand on things next week if you have any questions. Um, But if you do have any questions in the meantime, I would be so happy if you could let me know. Uh, And then maybe I can answer those in a part three episode. So I just want to say that I have done a lot of research for this, but of course it's not comprehensive. Um, There is always more studies out there. There's other opinions. There's probably other um, like integrative nutritionists who disagree with me and there might be people who really agree with me, right? So this isn't like an end-all be-all to food, (laughs) nutrition, or these diets in general. Um, So just because I'm saying like (laughs) about a certain diet doesn't mean that it doesn't work, doesn't mean it doesn't work for you, Um, and I can expand on that as we go as well. And so I want to start by saying that the Health at Every Size episode could be a good prequel to listen to before this, but I will briefly touch on some of those things in this one. So I think Health at Every Size must have come out about two months ago that sounds right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, definitely like in the last few months, you could find the Health at Every Size podcast. So I'm going to start by doing a brief overview of the BMI because I think it's, it really says a lot about where we are. It says a lot about diet culture and it says a lot about the way that we look at weight. Being that we have this idea or this standard of overweight, obese, normal, underweight. I think there's uh, starving is below that maybe. Um <clears throat> and it's helpful to have those kind of metrics at time, right? And so why would that be helpful? Like basically what I'm going to tell you is that I don't vibe with the BMI. <laughs> but I acknowledge that it can be a helpful starting point. And actually Harvard Health said um, something similar. So <laughs> basically one and the same. No, um, <clears throat> Harvard Health basically came out and did a blog post and said that BMI is not a good measure of health. However, it can be an okay starting point. So it could be a measure that is used, but it shouldn't be the measure that is used, right? Just like in psychology, there's something called the PHQ-9, and that's a screener for depression and suicidality. Um, And this is something that I used to use. However, so that could give you an idea of where someone falls on the depression scale. And it shouldn't be used to diagnose depression, right? And I think that's maybe how we can approach the BMI. I don't like it at all. Um, But if it is used, I think it should be used as a way to start the conversation and start the investigation into health, not the end point. And it often is used as one of the only measures and kind of the the gold standard. And I really don't think it should be that. And I'm going to tell you why. Well, to start with, it was invented 200 years ago, or a little over 200 years ago, and it was in the era that saw the creation of pseudoscientific theories such as social Darwinism, and that was used to justify nationalism and racism. So the BMI was also used to justify these things. Um, It was established by a mathematician, not a doctor, not a nutritionist. And he sought to measure the ideal height and weight of the average man based on a sample of white European man men. He saw this average as an ideal, right? So already in those two sentences, I can see so many things that are wrong with that, right? One, that means it was never used for health. Um, it was also used in this really like creepy racist way to determine what the ideal man was. Um, And it was also based on white European men, which the BMI is used for more bodies than just white European men. Right, so right there we have a huge problem. Um, But it kind of went away. It didn't, it kind of went away. But then it also resurfaced in the 1940s Um, and was established by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. And it was used to establish how weight might play a role in someone's likelihood of dying. So people use the BMI, this insurance company used the BMI to determine how much they would charge people and or if they would take that person on based on if they had a likelihood of dying. So already, like the resurface was still not intended as a measure for health. It was brought back in the 1970s, and then in 1972. But again, whiteness was really prioritized in this. They did do a little bit more research on this, um, but again, the um, the sample size was was very small and mostly white. I think there were like a very, very small amount of people who are not white, maybe in Africa. Um, and I, I went into this more in the health at every size. And so you could fact check me on that <sighs> fact check me with me. Um, but I believe those people either dropped out or like a lot of them fell out or didn't do the study to its completion. So it really couldn't be, the study even said it really can't be widely used in this way. Right. So it, rocky, rocky, rocky. Um, (laughs) And to make matters worse, in 1998, the NIH, or the National Institutes of Health, overnight lowered the overweight definition. So when we talk about the obesity epidemic, the obesity epidemic was really born overnight because the standard for what is overweight and what is obese changed so much. So they just severely lowered it, right? So already, I like to start with this. Oh, and the last point that I want to make on this is that researchers from the University of Pennsylvania have stated that the BMI is, quote, an inaccurate measure of body fat content. And then, like I said, Harvard Health has also come out to say that it's not perfect, right? They kind of say, like, "Eh, it's fine. (laughs) To summarize, they go, "Eh." yeah. Yeah, so I really like to start with this because most of our diet culture are ideas of weight and health really come from this idea of overweight and obese. And I just want to show that the threshold for what's overweight and obese is largely made up um, and has not only is it made up, it has really sexist and racist and classist backgrounds. All right. So, and if you want to deep dive, you can listen to the previous episode. So, I wanted to start with the keto diet. Actually, yes, I want to start with the keto diet. (laughs) Um, So, I'm not saying that the keto diet is bad. In fact, when I was doing research on this, it seemed like the consensus was the keto diet can be helpful for some, um, and it can be helpful for those with seizures. However... um, actually, before I start, let me just say, I'm not, if you're on the keto diet, I'm not saying you should get off of it. And if you have seizures, I'm not saying you should get on the keto diet, right? I'm not giving you advice in that way. So this information is purely for you to take and do with as you wish. But always, always, always listen to your body um, and contact any medical professionals that you are working with or that need to be consulted for this, right? Um, but basically the consensus that I found for the keto diet is that it's pretty good if you have seizures. Um, but that's not why most people do the keto diet, at least not in the experiences that I've had. People do it for quick weight loss, right? When I, and I've done it too. I could talk about that, the personal experience too, but, um, most people that I know, they like it because of the quick weight loss. And I even did it because, I had a friend who lost like 30 pounds in a month. Um, another like family member, I think, lost 15 pounds in a month. And so that was, of course, really appealing. Um, but let me just say that the kind of standard for weight loss typically it comes at one pound a week if you're, you know, if you are successfully slowly losing weight by diet and exercise alone, it's about one, maybe two pounds a week. So the most you should really be losing is like eight to 10 pounds a month. Um, And even that's a lot, Like I would say it's usually more like two to four pounds a month um, for the average person. And that's kind of an estimate. I don't, that's not like a statistical average there, Um, but I have read that a lot and heard that a lot. Um, so yeah, the fact that you might be able to lose basically a pound a day, um, is alarming for me through the lens that I have now, um, which is that that's a really fast, uh, like really quick. Um, and I think anything that offers us a quick turnaround or a quick payoff, um, is something that we should possibly be a bit weary about and not just diets, not just food, but anything, Right side note here, but, um, I'm a coach, obviously, uh, self-employed. self like I have my own business. Um, so I'm not working for anyone in this coaching business. And there's so many business coaches that target coaches, which is kind of funny to me online. Um, and I am always seeing things like double your income in one month and all this stuff. Um, and that to me also like has a red flag for me of like, anything that happen- offers such a quick turnaround, I'm super weary of. And diet is the same way. Um, so yeah, I did the keto diet in the start of 2020, like before shit happened. Um, and I did it in January because I wanted to lose the weight I had gained, uh, even though like in retrospect and with the health at every size and, and body love, lens that I have now, uh, I didn't need to lose weight. Like I was absolutely fine the way I was. Um, I don't know if I've ever shared this story, but the thing that prompted it was I went in for a, what are they called? You go every year, supposedly a checkup. I went in for a checkup. I have not gone since, So I do not go every year. Um, but I went in just to like, see if I was healthy. And we spent the whole time talking about my weight And the doctor brought up my weight, right? And I kept saying, like, I'm fine with my weight. I just want to see. Like, I just want to do a checkup. Um, And she kept saying things like, "Um, I'm sure your knees are really struggling under your weight. And I was saying, no, I am not having any knee pain. I'm like, I'm not experiencing any of these things that you're telling me about. Um, But it, of course, like, it hurt me very, very deeply because I actually went in feeling like really confident about my body. Um, like having love for my body and acceptance at the time. And so to have a medical professional basically spend an hour unprompted telling me that I needed to lose weight and that I was too heavy, um, yeah, really, really hurt me. And I know a lot of people experience that, um, to more degree or to more intenseness, but, <laughs> um, than I did at that time. Uh, but I was, yeah, it incredibly, incredibly wounded me and, and made me feel so self-conscious because I didn't even think it was an issue. Um, but when a medical professional tells you it is, then you usually believe them. Um, so I went on the keto diet and she didn't tell me to do that. So it's not like it's her fault. But had I not gone in for a checkup, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the moral of the story is, no. um, so yeah, I went on the keto diet and I ate like so much, fat, fatty foods. And fatty foods, that's where I learned that fatty foods don't necessarily equal like fat gain, um, which is really interesting and something that I have carried with me that fat can actually be something that's incredibly helpful and healthy to have in your diet and people really avoid it. Um, It also helped me look at my sugar intake. So I will say there was that pro to it, that my sugar intake was very high. And so, having to lower it that much was helpful for me. Um, but the unhelpful things were that I was like incredibly gassy. <laughs> um, uh, I'm just going to go for it. I had diarrhea that was incredibly bad, <laughs> um, and incredibly hard to go to work with. And like on a daily basis, um, I was, yeah, just feeling like really greasy cause I was eating like sour cream and cheese and, Uh, Whatever. And I know there are also like vegan options, although that sounds incredibly challenging. Uh, I know people who do it, but I don't think I could do that. Um, Yeah. And like lots of chicken. And but the thing that was weird to me is like I couldn't eat carrots, but yet I could eat bacon. I couldn't eat chickpeas, but yet I could have like beef jerky every day. (laughs) And not that there's something wrong with beef jerky every day, it just like didn't intuitively feel like something my body wanted every day, but I was hungry. So I was like, uh, okay, guess I'll do this. Um, So yeah, that was my personal experience. I stopped it after a month and the weight stayed off and then I gained it back uh, like March, April of 2020. But I'm not blaming that on the keto diet because obviously like shit happened. (laughs) So that could have been part of it as well. Um, But so more scientific things, the keto diet might cause low blood pressure kidney stones constipation not in my experience <laughs> cause quite the opposite nutritional deficiencies and increased risk of heart disease I would bet that last one is because a lot of people do eat like pretty heavy foods right like the cheeses and the sour creams but I don't know um and then also it's not safe for people with conditions involving their pancreas liver thyroid or gallbladder um, and then it goes on to say that strict diets like keto could also cause social isolation and disordered eating. Lastly, that it's not realistic or sustainable. And that's from the University of Chicago Medicine website. Yeah, I'm not surprised that they said that it can cause social isolation or disordered eating. I'm someone who has struggled with that in the past, so I felt that it really came up for me during that time. It didn't really kick in until about a week in. And I was like logging all of my food. And I think the thing about keto for it to like, quote unquote, work, you have to be meticulous. Like you can't do keto once a week or most of the week. You kind of have to do it constantly. I think we had the quote unquote cheat day, which like from my intuitive eating lens now, I I'm, I cringe at, right? But there's nothing wrong with that. Um, not, Like not in a judgy way, of course. Um. But yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when we did that or if we did that because me and my partner did it. That's why I'm saying we. Um, but yeah, uh, it. I couldn't really go out to eat with anyone. Um, I remember going out to coffee with my friend, and she was like, "I'll buy you a scone," and because I love scones, and I was like, "No, I can't eat scones because I already have like something planned, where I like in that space that I could have a scone." Um, and I remember her looking at me with this like feeling like look of like worry um, and and feeling a bit self-conscious like, oh, is that bad? Nah. Um, and it's not. It's not. It's not bad. Nothing is inherently bad, right? Especially when it comes to food. But I was so constantly in my head when it came to eating. And what I really like to encourage people to do and myself to do is really be in my body when it comes to eating. So a diet that I had to be really in my head, am very meticulous about just didn't feel very good, especially if my goal is intuitive eating. So that's that on the keto diet. Also the studies about um, uh, like the miracle benefits that people tend to think it will have, because besides weight loss, they have like all these other reasons that people might do the keto diet, all these health reasons. Um, but like I said, it's kind of proven or kind of shown to work for seizures but the evidence for anything else is is really low like there's nothing concrete studies have been mixed studies have been small etc cetera, etc cetera. and I am doing uh, another podcast episode about research like I said I would and how to have that critical lens when you are looking at research um and yeah it's not realistic or sustainable like I said it's I only did it for a month. I know people who've done it for years and I can't imagine, but I know lots of people tend to stop doing it a month or sooner. Um, I want to talk next about intermittent fasting. So I've (laughs) shit-talked intermittent fasting a couple of times on the podcast, so you might already know how I feel about it. And this is what I've always said um, on the podcast, and this is what I'm going to say now. If you are naturally intermittently fasting, then go for it. So uh, one person I worked with that comes to mind is that she would wake up and just not be hungry until 11 or 12 which is when her like fasting approach, what, like the, the the plan she was following for intermittent fasting was like eating at noon, stopping at, what was it, 7 or 8 p.m. Um, and there's other kinds of fasting, right? Like there's the option that you fast a couple times a week or once a week. Um, but I'm more talking about the, the daily fasts where you only eat between, in like, Uh, seven or 10 hour period, right? Um, And people like Dave Asprey, who I thought was really interesting, I like listened to all his podcasts. He was a big source of me getting into my health journey. Um, But as I've progressed in my health journey and learned a little bit more through my education in nutrition, and then just my own research I've done in nutrition, I have a little bit of beef (laughs) with that guy. (laughs) Um, But that's my own opinion. And yeah, I don't speak for all nutritionists or all people there. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of like proposed benefits, um, but all of these benefits are really theoretical because like I said, with the keto diet, they haven't been proven or the sample sizes haven't been big enough or the testing hasn't been long enough. Um, And the data is kind of mixed. Like, some studies are like, this is great. Some studies are like, this sucks. Um, But, like, it all needs more research. And I think that's something that's just so important. I'll do that other episode on research. But if I could leave you with something with research, it's that whenever you see like a beautiful, oh my goodness, study, be weary. Just like I said, with like promising weight loss quickly. Be weary of things that have big results. Because one, um, the actual result of the study may not be uh, that big. They may be like kind of pop culturing eyes, <laughs> eyesing, um studies that are actually like pretty mundane and show like probably a this might have an effect. Seems good, but we don't know yet. Like that could get sensationalized in the media as being a really big scientific finding. And so I encourage people to try and do their own research and read those articles that like media outlets are covering um, and see the comparison and the side by side there. Um John Oliver has a great video that I've linked to before. Um, or you can just look up John Oliver, like p hacking, I think. Um, it's a really good one. (laughs) It's really funny too. Um, yeah. So these proposed benefits that people like Dave Asprey or just like the internet in general will say are like phenomenal. Um, they're not super proven, right. Or they're based on animal research and animal research is awesome. It gives us a lot of information and it's oftentimes needed for, further research it's needed to draw conclusions from for research but animal research isn't human research right and so we can have an idea of something but we also want to have the full picture before we make decisions about our health right um so depriving yourself of food for an extended period of time can increase your stress levels, disrupt your sleep, increase anxiety and depression, and more. So if you've listened to my intuitive eating podcast or you've seen my intuitive eating posts, you know that one of my guiding values in health and health coaching and nutrition is that we can listen to our body and that we can listen to our hunger cues. Right, And so if you want a deep dive on that, I also have a podcast on intuitive eating. Um, But basically, that just says that we can trust our hunger cues. And that if we're hungry, it's a cue from our body that we need to eat. And intermittent fasting, unless it's something, like I said, that your body does naturally and that feels good and feels intuitive to you and your body or your schedule even, um, then that's fine. But if you're really pushing through hunger, it just... I don't think it's as beneficial as people think it is because what you're telling your body is to go into a state of stress or you're more easily reactive to stress or both because your body, even though your mind is saying, Hey, we're going to eat in like two hours. Your body doesn't know and it's anxious that it's being basically deprived food until whatever o'clock or for a whole day. Um, and also when our basic needs aren't met, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when our basic basic needs aren't met, um, we can't function as well as we can. <laughs> we don't function as well as we, if we want to. And at the bottom of that hierarchy of needs is physiological needs, and food is a part of that. And so I I know that with fasting, eventually you're going to eat, but if your physiological needs aren't being met, then your safety, your love and belonging, your esteem, and your self-actualization, that might not be met either, right? You need to, whenever possible, and it's totally privileged to say this, I'm talking about the people who are fasting on purpose, when they could eat. Also, my AC just turned on, so I hope that's not picking up, but if it is, I'm so sorry. It sounds like ghoulish shrieking. (laughs) Um, yeah. Like how can, how can we turn away from purposefully not meeting our needs to meeting our needs with love? Also, I have closed my window, so (laughs) hopefully the shrieking of the AC has stopped. (laughs) Um, Part of the fascination with intermittent fasting arises from research with animals showing that fasting may reduce cancer risk and slow aging. So this is a quote from um, Dr. Hugh. Um, I need to find the website where I grabbed this from too. Um, One hypothesis is that fasting can activate cellular mechanisms that help boost immune function and reduce inflammation associated with Crohn's disease. While it's true that getting rid of excess body fat will improve a person's metabolic profile and lower cardiovascular risk, he says, there's no strong evidence that fasting adds health benefits beyond any other weight loss strategy. So what that doctor is basically saying is like fasting might work, (laughs) fasting might not, right? And that's from um, Harvard Health. Uh, That's where I got that quote from. Um, The reduction in food intake that comes along with some intermittent fasting regimens may negatively affect your digestion, causing constipation and other side effects. Plus, changes in diet associated with intermittent fasting may cause bloating and diarrhea. So basically, either way, you're fucked. (laughs) Dehydration, another common side effect related to intermittent fasting, can worsen constipation. For this reason, it's essential to stay properly hydrated if you do practice intermittent fasting. Also, so that's all from Harvard, of, um, Harvard Health. Harvard of Health. <laughs> um, and also, there is not a lot of research on what you should do if you are a menstruating person. And when you are on your menstrual phase or your bleeding phase, um, it's really not helpful to be fasting as well. And also like late luteal phase as well when you're extra hungry. If you're extra hungry, it's for a reason. We don't want to override those hunger cues if we can help it. All right. So that's my tea on intermittent fasting. And also I didn't include this, but just like with keto, um, there's a huge risk of falling into disordered eating as well. Um, and also it's, it's, it's not super feasible, right? Like even if you are able to push through your hunger or you're not hungry, so it feels fine to you. Um, it's also like logistically can be challenging. It means maybe you're not able to go out to eat. It means that maybe you're feeling shame and overwhelm about your food. Also, sometimes it's hard to get home and cook on time to end the fast at whatever time you're supposed to end it. Right. So I just don't think it's a sustainable practice. Um, I feel pretty passionately about that one. <laughs> so I actually wouldn't think to include this, but my one of my best friends who was my college roommate for a little while, um, she recommended this because I was working on it while she was working on homework. She recommended I talk about juicing, which I think is really interesting. I don't know a whole lot of people in my life who have gone on juice cleanse, but I know it's been really popular and is really popular, and it kind of promotes supposedly that like detoxification and weight loss. Um, but I have a lot of information about juicing. So I'm really excited to talk about that. AKA it's not great. (laughs) Um, the first thing that I saw that was really interesting was you would be surprised at how some juices don't mix with your medications that you're on. One example was grapefruit and grapefruit actually has a lot of potential interactions with different medications. Uh, I'm not going to do the list for you, but you can, I think drug, drug.com or drugs.com has like a pretty comprehensive list and you can also Google herbs as well. Um, and before you take herbs or any supplements, I think it's a great idea to do your own research or ask your doctor or nurse practitioner, um, what the interactions might be. And I still would say do your own research as well. Cause sometimes, I've had experiences with um, certain people who were incorrect about something not having interactions, and it actually did. So something I would not have thought about there. Another risk for juicing is that it may increase your risk for type 2 diabetes if you already have pre-diabetes. Um, and that was a study that was published in September of 2019 in the Journal of Diabetes Care, and it found that... Upping your intake of sugary beverages, which includes 100% fruit juices, by a half cup a day or more, increase the risk of diabetes by 16%. So here's the thing about juice. (laughs) Um, So just because there is no added sugar, which one there usually is, but even if there is no added sugar, you're still getting all of the sugar from the fruit that made the juice. And to make juice, you need to juice a lot more fruits than you would normally have. Another risk is you could damage your kidneys if you have kidney disease. Fruits and veggies are naturally rich sources of potassium. So potassium is definitely something we all need, usually a good thing. Um, this mineral plays a key role in blood pressure regulation according to the AHA. AHA or the American Heart Association and your kidneys do the important job of excreting excess potassium. But if you have chronic kidney disease, that function doesn't work as well and potassium can build up in your blood. As such, you'll have to limit your potassium intake as too much of the mineral can cause dangerous side effects or even heart attacks. And that's according to the National Kidney Foundation. So if you already have an issue with your kidneys, juicing isn't the way to go. Um, And it's actually funny. I was doing this research, and then we went to go get juice (laughs) just as like a beverage. I actually didn't get any, but I was looking at all the signs. One thing I noticed was the um, appeal of cold-pressed juice. So I think what people like about cold-pressed juice is that it tastes really fresh and and really good, Um, but it's not pasteurized, which like, you know. I don't know. I'm not taking an official stance there, but because of that, it may increase the risk of food poisoning, says the FDA, and that's because juicing allows bacteria on the outside of the produce to become incorporating into the juice. This story I'm going to tell you is going to like blow your mind, and also I don't know <laughs> the like statistical facts behind this because um, I learned it as a child. So, but my parents also always used to tell me to not get lemons at a restaurant because a lot of lemons get transported in the same trucks as horses and cows. Um, And sometimes they weren't even in boxes. So I don't know like how true that is. As I re-say it, like I don't want (laughs) to quote my parents from like 20 years ago, but like even if that's not always true or not Backed by facts. Um, I also believe it. (laughs) Like, I believe that it's quite possible that um, the produce that you get that you don't wash yourself is probably not so clean on the outside, right? And when we're putting that into our juice, also, like, I'm not shitting on any juicing place, but just in general, like, how do you know the person making your juice is going to clean your vegetables or, like, clean your fruit off all the way? You don't know. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go into detoxification or detoxing, which is something that people like to do. Um, malnourishment is a huge risk of juicing as well. So even if you're technically meeting all of your nutrients and mineral needs from a juice, you're not getting the same nourishment, um, and your body's not getting the same fuel that it would from food, food. Um, so there is that risk of malnourishment, getting low blood pressure. Um, and then of course all the things that come with being hungry. Again, you're allowed to trust your hunger. Um, a lot of us think that being like pushing through hunger makes us like stronger or braver. Um, and there are lots of religions or spiritual practices that incorporate fasting and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are doing this for health reasons, who think it's healthy and I'm, I'm I want to shed light on the fact that it's probably not as healthy as you think it is. Um one of the quotes from everydayhealth.com is when you drink orange juice, you get vitamin C, but it's not the same as eating an orange. That's because juice removes the pulp or the fiber it's necessary to keep your colon in good working order. So you might be getting vitamin C, but you're not getting the same benefits as just like eating an orange, right? And that's true for a lot of fruits. Um, And the last one from this article of everydayhealth.com is you're passing on energy sustaining protein, right? So you might be getting protein in your juice, but it's not super energy sustaining. And that article was, (laughs) hold kale. Hold the kale. Ten reasons juicing can be bad for your health. Um, and I wanted to end this in a nice transition point, which is that your body doesn't need a cleanse most of the time as it detoxes on its own. So that was the last one that I wanted to cover was that detox stuff. Uh, and that's something that my my best friend slash old roommate uh, said was, those like powders or meal replacement shakes or pills that you can take to detox. Um, But juices are kind of included because a lot of people do like the juice detox as well, right? Um, So detoxing, also known as detoxification, is the process of ridding the body of toxic or harmful substance. So this is not like inherently flawed right? Because the average American diet, which is where I'm from, is very high in processed foods, high calorie foods, and foods that aren't just high calorie, because again, I don't want to calorie count anymore, um, but things that just don't have a lot of caloric density or nutritional value. And a lot of detox diets will focus on cutting out those foods and replacing them with foods or kind of what's offers that quick fix is that we can do pills or herbs or supplements to do that detox or juice to do that detox process for us. But the truth is the body is incredibly amazing and already has very effective ways to deal with detoxing itself. So I'm also like, I wanted to say I'm guilty of this, but I didn't do anything wrong. But just like I've done the keto diet and maybe experienced not so great effects and kind of learned for myself that it didn't work for me. I've also done intermittent fasting. Um, Sometimes I accidentally do intermittent fasting. (laughs) Um, I've also tried these pills. I've never tried diet pills, but I've had pills that have like diuretics or laxatives in them. They're like natural laxatives um, I've tried like things that have herbs that are supposed to like burn fat while you sleep and stuff like that. And I will say none of them worked. And a a big thing, I think it was a Kardashian. I'm not sure. Um, who had like a skinny tea or a detoxing tea. Those are super common as well. Um, and probably like the teas that you would buy at, the store that our detox teas are probably fine and might even be good for you. Like they might have ginger and lemon, like the, the names of the teas are kind of like, eh, like maybe kind of supporting that diet culture, which I don't love, but like ginger is typically fine. Of course, like right. Check the drugs.com or drug.com. But like those teas are, I think are typically healthy. Um, but One of the problems around these products is that they're largely unregulated and untested. Um, And I have an episode I'm doing on supplements as well. Um, So that is going to be a little follow-up on that and how unregulated that market is. Basically, short answer. um, And actually, John Oliver has a video on this too. (laughs) Um, He's my real nutrition guide. (laughs) just kidding um oh yeah basically like the supplement industry is taxed with regulating itself so it's it's not a very productive um, regulation system so you can easily buy something that's harmful to your body it's not uncommon, like I said, for some of those detox things to use laxatives or diuretics so people use the bathroom more, which, of course, does help you lose water weights, but, like, it's, one, not really burning fat, which is what you're probably wanting, and it can lead to dehydration. Detox pills and diets can use substances that help purge the body of toxins or detox the body, but the laxatives or supplements used in these products can cause severe gastrointestinal issues. So sometimes, um, for example, if, you get, if you're taking antibiotics, for example, you want to be careful that you don't get rid of all the, the, the things <laughs> in your gut, right? And I think it's similar to this. that like you might be purging your body, but like of what? You know what I mean? And a lot of these diets involve cutting out important nutrients, um, and not having a safe way to replace them. And you could be missing out on crucial vitamins and minerals if you follow detox diets. So again, all of these things are ways that we can offer our bodies and our weight a quick fix. It's not even we're offering it. These industries are offering us a quick fix. And I want you to think about intuitive eating, right? Um, who can capitalize on intuitive eating? I mean, there can be courses and books and workbooks, whatever, about intuitive eating. So, like, yes, people can still profit, but you can't sell a pill to intuitively eat. You can't start a diet book. Maybe you could of intuitive recipes. I mean, that'd be kind of cool. But, like, in the most part, you can't make a lot of money as a like, capitalist machine By promoting intuitive eating, you don't make a whole lot of money by promoting listening to your body or, like, yeah, just kind of, like, taking it day by day. Um, So I just want to, like, kind of throw that out there, too, of, like, who really stands to benefit from these diets or these pills that you see, these powders that you see, especially, 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 especially. The supplement market, oh my goodness, they make so much money in a year. But when you're doing intuitive eating, you're probably not spending as much on supplements, so they're really going to push for diets. Actually, I have that number. Let me pull it up. The diet in 2020, the dietary supplement market in the U.S. is estimated at $46 billion in 2020, and I bet it's gone up with the pandemic because people were uh, buying a lot of like immunity boosting supplements. So I bet the, the market went even higher up. Um, Yeah, but our bodies do have that intuitive wisdom. Um, and the yo-yo dieting just so often causes us to really harm ourselves mentally and physically and emotionally. They're not sustainable. Um, And anything that offers you that, like, beautiful, shiny fix, I would be really weary of. But, yeah, so next week I'm going to go over a little bit more fads that kind of are, like, privilege, racism-based. I'm going to be going over what food racism is. Um, I'll touch on the BMI. (laughs) Um, Like, Oh yeah, I'm going to save that for, I'm going to save that surprise for next week. (laughs) But yeah, thanks for listening. I hope you find this helpful. Again, this is not meant to override your judgment and your intuition, especially not the judgment or or guidance from a doctor or medical professional that you might be working with, but it is a little food for thought. Wink, wink. All right. Hope you enjoy. Let me know if you have any questions.